You're listening to the Child Safeguarding Podcast by Pointing Consulting and Advisory. Welcome back to another episode of the Child Safeguarding Podcast by PCA. I'm your host, Brad Pointing. Uh, And today I am joined uh, by my guest, John Cox. John is the director of the National Safe Church Unit for the Uniting Church in Australia. And the Uniting Church in Australia is one of the largest faith-based organisations in the country. And the Safe Church Unit is tasked to provide and resource the change required to deliver the church's commitment to provide a safe place for all. Welcome along, John. Thanks, Brad. Great to be here. Excellent. So, uh, to get us started, can you tell me more about the Safe Church Unit and the work that you do there? Sure. The Uniting Church, when the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was announced, made a value statement to the community to say that we were absolutely supportive of the work of the Royal Commission. We were ready to receive feedback from the Royal Commission to uh, recognise when we had done something that was less than ideal, to learn, to grow and to work towards being a safe place for all people. Our work during the Royal Commission lived out that value statement and post the Royal Commission, the church wanted to express its commitment and focus its energy around continuing that work. And Mm -hmm. that was the impetus behind uh, the establishment of the National Safe Church Unit. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, And our focus today is going to be on keeping children safe, but that isn't the only focus of, of your unit, is it? It is our initial focus, but the church has a view that keeping uh, people safe is part of who we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should be a safe place. Mm -hmm. So our work has the capacity to extend beyond children, but certainly we have started focusing on children and young people. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, so if it's if it's possible, let's try not to get too too complicated. Um, but when people say the Uniting Church in Australia, um, there is a national committee, but the Uniting Church is made up of a few, of a few regional groups uh, called synods. Um, and you can correct the details in a moment, please. <laughs> um, but how does your unit interact at that national level and at the next level down at that at that sort of synod level? How does that that interplay work? Sure. So. You're right, the Uniting Church uh, operates with different councils Mm -hmm. across the country. So the National Council is called the Assembly, the Synods are uh, six regional councils, and then we have um, geographically bound in the most part uh, more local councils called presbyteries, and then we have congregations. Mm -hmm. Notwithstanding all of that, uh, we also have a range of Uniting uh, agencies. Yep and schools and a variety of other things that come under the banner of the Uniting Church. So we are multifaceted, multidimensional mm-hmm. as an organisation. The National Safe Church Unit was established by a joint decision of the synods and the assembly. Because in the church we're a federated body, so uh, each of the, well, Sorry, we're not quite a federated body Okay. Uh, in that we don't uh, establish federation by constitution, but within the way we are structured, uh, we have councils that sit roughly 
um, on state boundaries. Mm -hmm. And those councils are responsible essentially for what happens within their boundaries. Yeah. So the National Safe Church Unit sits between our national body and those bodies as a resource for the church. We don't report to just one council so that we can't be directed so mm -hmm. that there's a level of externality mm -hmm. to what the work that we do we can speak into the life of the church yep. um, but we also don't have the level of authority uh, that might come in a more hierarchical structure yeah. whereby we can tell people what to do yeah so we interact with our national body with our state bodies with key stakeholders in our agencies and in our schools and we seek to work collaboratively to drive child safety that is nationally consistent and best practice. Okay, awesome. Thank you. That was um, that was quite concise because I, I do know we've had conversations in the past and I do know that it, it does get complicated very, very quickly. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> um, and one of the interesting things that, that you did mention as well is that um, when we're talking about the Uniting Church, probably most people, and, and I'm one of them, immediately think of the... Um, the faith base, the congregations and, and um, going to church service and those sorts of things. But that's not all of it by any means. People are, are probably somewhat familiar with some of the um, community agencies, uh, schools and hospitals and things like that, um, that also make up that constellation of, of the Uniting Church. Um, yes. And how, do, how does the unit, your unit work across those other agencies and... Um, and what, and what else is in, involved in that? What else is part of those agencies? So our unit works collaboratively yep. uh, with the agencies. Again, uh, we don't have an authority over them, but we do have a national commitment as a church to being safe. The benefit we have of working with our agencies is that they are, in some respects, further down uh, the organisational child safe path than uh, some of our congregations are. Uh, it's a function of contracts that they have with governments. It's a function of uh, societal expectation. And so they are um, broadly uh, well structured um, to ensure that children and young people are safe. And that ranges everything from um, kind of family support. Uh, some, in some cases, it um, is foster care or out of home care. In some cases, it's um, particular uh, health supports. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a range of different things that are offered to children and young people through the life of our agencies um, and our schools. But the key is that because of their experience and the context in which they work, they've invested significantly into uh, processes, policies, systems that will help to support child safety. Uh, the great thing that we are seeing as a unit is the absolute consistency between the intent of what each of those agencies and schools are doing mm -hmm. and what it is that the unit is doing. So we're not in any way at cross purposes. Yep. Uh, it's, it's the same underpin applied to context. And so where 
trying to springboard leverage our opportunities from that um, by building collaborative networks across the life of the church. Oh, okay, thanks. So that's really interesting. Um, and I guess just as a, a bit of a, a tease for an upcoming episode uh, in the next couple of months, I will be talking to, uh, I think her title is the Statewide uh, Child Protection Manager or Child, Child Safety and Practice Manager or something something like that. Um, but she's from uh, Uniting Care in Queensland and, and I'll, I'll probably be talking to her a bit more about um, keeping children safe in those other environments that you've just sort of listed off there. So we will leave that there now and um, we'll turn actually to specifically to you now and it's a little bit more about your background. Uh, so in preparation for, for our conversation, I was looking through your LinkedIn profile and I saw that before you became the director of the unit, you were the executive officer for the church's Royal Commission Task Force Group. So I'm really keen for you to, to talk a little bit about your experience uh, in that role uh, and you know how, how did that come to pass and what were some of those um, some of those achievements I, th- I guess that you you were able to, to, to pull off in that role. Thanks. Um, it was a, a fascinating role. Uh, one of the privileges I think of my ministry career uh, to this point because it built on that value statement that I spoke of earlier with respect to the Royal Commission. So I was tasked with the responsibility of enacting that commitment to the Royal Commission. Mm -hmm. So that lived out uh, through the way in which we delivered material to the Royal Commission, Mm -hmm. responded to issues papers, resourced ourselves for conversations that the Commission wanted to have with us when we were part of roundtables or hearings. Uh, But it also extended, um, I I used to talk about having two faces in that role. We had the face that faced the Royal Commission Mm -hmm. and gave the Royal Commission everything that they wanted or needed from the church. And then we had the face that faced back to the church to make sure that the church heard absolutely everything that was relevant to us and to child safety in and through the life of the church from our learnings out of the Royal Commission. So in that kind of um, interface, we had opportunity to explore with the church what some of the things that the Royal Commission were delivering meant for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Given that we are... Um, into conciliar. We have those different councils and each council is responsible for a set of things. Um, And given that the national task group couldn't direct, I think one of the great achievements of the work of that national task group was to build a coherence in response to the Royal Commission across what is a fairly diverse church. Uh, We managed to gather disparate voices in the church together. We managed to have conversations that mattered about issues and we managed to put our best foot forward and a unified voice to the commission in support of the commission's work. In light of that, we uh, learnt some things from the the commission. We changed the way that we enacted some of our processes to make them cleaner and more transparent. Uh, 
we established greater levels of information sharing appropriately within privacy restrictions, but mm -hmm. to ensure across the breadth of the church that we were working together on the best information. So it's that collaboration piece, uh, I think, that I'm most proud of out of yeah. that time. Good. That's that's. Uh, it's really good to hear that, that was uh, firstly a, a positive experience. Um, some, without going into into sort of too much detail, some organisations uh, seemed or at least appeared not overly willing. I'll phrase it that way <laughs> to engage with the Royal Commission. Um, but I think off the top of my head, maybe and you might know case study fifty six. I think one Correct. of the the last ones. So that yes. was when the Uniting Church uh, reappeared and to provide some an update and some information on um, what was being done in response to some earlier appearances. Uh, and one of the things that, that really stood out to me from that was um, the apology made uh, as part of that. Uh, I believe that was part of, I'm sure, I'm, I hope it I'm was. right there. It was good. You are correct. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Um, and also one of the, the things that really stood out for me in that was that the Uniting Church did not... Um, shy away from the fact that um, things had occurred, uh, that they had failed to keep children safe and that they needed to change and to be better. And that's that's one of the things that I talk about with organisations a lot, that organisations need, need to accept um, that the risk of child abuse and neglect within their organisation is always going to be present. And it's only after organisations accept that that risk exists that they're actually in a position to be able to respond to it. And then taking that a step further for Uniting Church, um, that includes that recognition that, that children had experienced harm uh, in their care before. And uh, as I said a few times now, um, you and I have had some other conversations and I can see that come through in lots of the material from um, the Uniting Church that the organisation does not shy away from its history uh, and, a, and a, a very, uh, I guess, upfront about the fact that it, that history cannot be allowed to, to be repeated uh, in the future and probably one of the reasons why your unit has been established, I'd assume. I think that that's right. And I think you've captured uh, something of the essence of uh, Case Study 56. We absolutely wanted to uh, demonstrate to the Commission that we'd heard mm. what the Commission was saying. Um, and in doing that, uh, we weren't seeking to do anything other than say, we are working toward being an organisation um, that is safe for all people mm -hmm. uh, in the ways that you, the Commission, have articulated to us, the Church, that uh, we have some room to move and some places where we could be a lot better. So uh, the, the interesting thing of that experience uh, from the Church's end was uh, not the experience in and of itself, but the work that we did in preparation for the experience of that case study and uh, wanting to be really clear about what our story actually was yeah. as a result of the Royal Commission. And uh, again, not that there weren't gaps, mm -hmm. um, but we were able to say, yes, we are continuing present tense, not completed we mm -hmm. are still working on this but we are working on this it's it's not something that we made it through the commission yeah <laughs> um yeah that's really 
pragmatic uh, approach to be taking to that as well. And, and yes, I guess I'd suggest probably the, the right way to be approaching that, that, um, that situation too. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. This might be a little bit more delicate, um, but were there any, any sort of low lights or anything that you, that you are hoping to achieve uh, through that role that, that you were not able to? I think in reality, Brad, there's in any role, there's the restrictions around resourcing, mm -hmm. um, around time, uh, around competing priorities. So there are probably a range of things that in a perfect world, uh, I would have been further down the track on delivering by the time the commission finished. Yeah. The uh, great thing that had happened by that stage was the growing commitment to create the unit. Mm -hmm. It wasn't created exactly at the end of the Royal Commission. Uh, there was some work still to be done, but there was a commitment toward ensuring that we delivered on those commitments that we'd made to the Commission and to the Australian community. So I knew that we could take that further. I, I guess if there was one thing to name, we started working on the thinking and underpinning philosophical position around nationally consistent training yep. in the final year of the Commission's life. We recognise the import of generating and resourcing people to be actively engaged. Because mm -hmm. we'd heard the Royal Commission say uh, the risk uh, isn't just the person with intent to harm yeah the risk is that people think the people next to them could never be a person with intent to harm mm. so we wanted to ensure that we built a culture of safety that everyone was involved in and one of the ways to support that was nationally consistent training okay that uh, for all kinds of reasons, uh, resource reasons, time reasons, and some pragmatic reasons couldn't happen. Uh, and I would have liked us to have been further down that track. Uh, but we are there now. Yep. And uh, we're getting ready to launch next year. And that's really exciting. Yeah, and um, I'll probably I'll ask you a few more questions about that um, in, in, in a moment, uh, in just a few minutes, actually. <laughs> um, so yeah, you've, you've mentioned the, oh sorry, actually, thank you uh, very much for going into some detail there. Like I said, it's probably a delicate question and um, I, in writing the question, I wasn't sure <laughs> if you would be willing to answer it. So thank you for giving an honest and, and detailed answer there. Um, but yeah, turn, let's turn to back to the, your current role in the unit. Uh, so what are some of those major achievements that uh, of the unit since it was established and pro actually probably even before that, um, how did the unit actually come to, to be established? Obviously, it was um, continuing from that work from, from the Royal Commission. Um, but what was the actual process and how easy or difficult was that to do? Uh, so the process was um, fairly long. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't in and of itself a bad thing. It, it just was what was needed. Uh, so... The commitment was there at the end of the Royal Commission to ensure that the church continued to be, continued to grow, continued to develop into being a safe place for all people. The work of the Royal Commission task group continued for 12 months 
essentially to continue to deliver on that commitment and to propose to the church a way forward so that we would uh, instill into our structure some intent around delivering on Mm -hmm. this. The outworking of that um, and an exploration process that I went through with um, various stakeholders across the church was the proposal to create the unit that is now in being. Um, There were a range of other options explored, but it seemed that the unit was going to provide the best value for the church. Mm -hmm. So uh, we put that out there to the church. There was a bit of consultation process uh, with key stakeholders across the life of the church, including key leaders, Mm -hmm. and we explored opportunities for the church to uh look at this in different ways but each time we did we came back to the roughly the model that we now operate so we formalized a proposal to the church and i think as i said earlier this is a decision made by the national body and all of the synods yeah Uh, so it therefore needed to go as a proposal to each of those bodies Mm -hmm. for their endorsement and that was probably the the trickiest part. We wanted to ensure that what we were doing had the support of everyone in those leadership roles across the life of the church. And we wanted to ensure that the decisions that were being made were completely consistent. Mm-hmm. So we had to uh, be really careful when a body in a particular jurisdiction asked us a question or proposed some slight deviation to the way in which the proposal would operate because that would then put us out of line with the other stakeholders making this decision. Yeah. So we worked our way through that very carefully uh, and the outcome of that was that the unit was created and um, then following that there was uh, an open appointment process for the role of director, and mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to get that role. Did you always intend to take up that director role, or, or um, I guess at least throw your hat in, into the ring, or were you had other options of where you were going to go within the church? Um, being a minister of the church, uh, there are a range of different places that I could serve mm-hmm. in the church. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that um, the Safe Church Unit was kind of the only option or even uh, a a predetermined path. I certainly always intended to throw my hat in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had valued and appreciated the opportunity I'd had in the National Task Group. I thought that the work that that group had done had set the unit up for success Mm -hmm. and I wanted to uh, continue that work and deliver that the church yeah but i'm a uh, pragmatist in the sense that i think the church needs the best people in the right places and so i was completely open to the possibility that there might be someone who had uh, more focused skills in child safety that could do this role uh, better than me and if that had been the case i i would have uh, regretted that that was the case but I would have been comfortable that the church was well served. Yeah. And in the end, that's the commitment for both myself and my colleague Nina in the unit. 
that's what we're about. It's about ensuring that the church is well served in this space. Yeah, awesome. Um, so then back to that, the, the question I started to ask. Uh, so what are some of those major achievements of the unit since it has been established? So we've uh, built a collaboration framework across the church, um, which has set us up for success. Mm-hmm. So we got buy-in from all of our stakeholders. Uh, we set a mode of operating and uh, we have broad agreement across the church mm-hmm. that uh, when we deliver pieces into the church, which are according to our um, purpose, that those pieces will be adopted within the church. Uh, given all due diligence processes uh, are retained, um, yeah. if, if a particular body doesn't think something we've done quite makes it, then the, there's no worry about that. They can come back and tell us and we'll work with that. Mm-hmm. But um, we don't have to, uh, in inverted commas, um, uh, go through the, the process each and every time. Yeah, yeah. So we, based on that collaboration framework, we built our overarching uh, National Safe Church Policy Framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pr- that framework then uh, provides the overarching sense of everything that we'll deliver. And then we've started to deliver uh, programs, policies underneath that. Yep. We've established resource banks mm-hmm. for uh, people in key safeguarding roles as well as resources for people who are in congregationally focused roles. Mm-hmm. We are working on uh, information uh, sessions, webinars. We are developing the curriculum, uh, which I know we're going to talk about, but yep. <laughs> uh, we've, we've done that and the training is uh, 90% built and we are ready to go to deliver that. Uh, So there's been a whole range of things, but the thing that makes it all work is that collaboration framework and that commitment of all of the stakeholders at the start that we're going to work on this together. Yeah, okay. So that collaboration framework then, so my understanding is that you could develop something, would I say the, the training, because we've, we've mentioned that a few times, you could develop some sort of training, and, but a synod could say, we're not happy with that, we're not going to use that. And that's that's a decision that they can make or a, a position they can take. But um, I guess what I'm leading to my assumption there would be there's probably been some sort of breakdown with that collaboration framework if that problem got that far down the line, got to that point. Is that the that's intent of that document? Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. Everyone retains their rights. So yep. yes, a synod could say, no, we're not going to use that. But uh, given the structure of the framework, if we haven't raised those issues and worked with those issues a long time before we get to that decision, then we've failed. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And just to be clear, because uh, that, that national training piece is, is probably one of your pillars. That hasn't happened. That was just a, an example that, that I just plucked from there. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it, in fact, we've, um, in that space, we had uh, one of our synods who was well advanced in their own training and development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, from the beginning, assumed that they may not join us for a time mm-hmm. um, because they had invested so much into their own training 
and I think as the process has unfurled and the collaboration piece around the development of the training has unfurled, I think there is a greater uh, level of excitement about being part of one national yeah. training package. And oh, that's wow. just that's, brilliant. Yeah, that's great news. Um, so let's let's talk about that national curriculum a little bit more. Um, so could obviously I do know a bit about it. We'll explain that as well. Um, but could you could you tell me what the national curriculum is so that so that other people listening have a better idea of what it is? Sure. So uh, back to the conversation earlier where we talked about training being a pivotal mm-hmm. uh, pillar and strategy for us. We determined that we wanted to design and develop a national training curriculum for child safe training for the church. Mm -hmm. So it would be a one-stop shop that would identify uh, the uh, issues that needed to be explored in training, Mm -hmm. the learning outcomes that we wanted to see from the training, and then uh, a, in broad strokes, content capture. So the issues that needed to be unpacked through the content of the training. Yeah. That uh, curriculum then is designed such that uh, we can build training from it and have built training from it, but it stands as, uh, and this is uh, a little bit of a, um, a, a sideways analogy that comes from my history in the church, but mm-hmm. it stands as the source of truth mm-hmm. for us um, when it comes to our, our training. So even if there was a synod who had uh, other training that they were doing, we would still have worked with that synod to map it to the curriculum to ensure that nationally we were um, meeting the same benchmarks. Uh, so one of those one of those examples of of that extra training might be something like the uh, reportable conduct schemes, which are in a, a few states now at, at the time of recording, and probably will continue to pop up in other states and territories too. Um, but the national curriculum, because it is nationally consistent, uh, my understanding is that it wouldn't provide specific training for the whole every every state and territory on how to respond to the reportable conduct scheme, but. It, it creates sort of the conditions so that in, in New South Wales, in Victoria, in the ACT, they can just bolt on their extra piece of, the well, this is how we deal with uh, with reportable conduct schemes in our state uh, or territory, and they can just provide that extra little piece. Is that is that how it's designed to work? That, that's exactly how it's designed to work. And yep. um, it, I think that's a really good clarification. What mm. is in our curriculum and in our core training is that which is about safeguarding. Yeah. Particular legislative requirements that mm. are appropriate to particular contexts will need to be bolted on, as yep. you said. Yeah. Um, so what we've done in the curriculum is core safeguarding. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably good that I'm able to... Um... To, to describe that quite quite um, sort of quickly and clearly uh, because you did engage an external consultant <laughs> to work with you on the development of this, didn't you? Um, we did indeed. <laughs> and and uh, not because we're sitting here with each other having this conversation, mm-hmm. but it was uh, objectively one of the best things that we've done in this process because it actually clarified mm-hmm. for us 
what was important where some of our thinking lacked some uh, rigor yep. and uh, really challenged us to yeah, think more okay. carefully. Great. Yeah, so for, for full transparency, um, the, the unit did engage pointing consulting and advisory to, to consult on this and, and help uh, design um, that national curriculum and, and do a whole project around that. And that's actually continuing now into, into some oversight work with the, the content creation, which you said is about 90% done at the moment um, to help make sure that's all um, going as it should be as well. Um, but I did want to spend, and it's, it is a little bit strange since I'm the consultant, um, but I did want to spend a little bit of time about your rationale for, for going to get an external child safeguarding consultant to help you out uh, and how that's benefited the project overall, um, which is, yeah, it's going to sound like I'm asking for you to give me compliments, but if you can talk about the process more than, than uh, the specific consultant, that would be, be helpful, I think. I'm happy to speak to process, but at the risk of uh, embarrassing you, um, I, I would like to uh, compliment you. Uh, the support that uh, PCA gave us in this project, in particular, the, the level of engagement that you were able to offer us uh, and our key stakeholder group was exceptional oh, uh, and a, a huge value add for the project. From a process perspective, to go back to your question, uh, we recognised that whilst we have people with significant skill base mm -hmm. in the life of the church in a variety of roles related to child safety, to risk management, uh, to education and training, we didn't have someone who could objectively stand apart from us mm -hmm look into us and say, you know what, here's where we need to go, here's what we need to do, here's some things that you haven't thought about, or here's another way to think about this. Mm -hmm. It was imperative for us to be able to say to uh, the Australian community, um, as per our commitment, that we were working to best practice in this space. It was imperative for us to have an external voice who could uh, support, but also provide some objective rigor mm -hmm. to what it was that we were doing so that we could fulfill our commitment, both internally to our stakeholders, but externally to the community. Yeah. So the decision in functional terms was then to talk with our key stakeholder group, get their agreement, which took roughly a nanosecond. <laughs> uh, it was one of those, um, the, the American constitution calls them self-evident truths. Um, it was one of those self-evident truths uh, that it would be highly beneficial for us to utilize that kind of resource for this project. Yeah, awesome, thank you. I think, yeah, I think it's really important um, for organizations to get that different perspective uh, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've all, what you've always got, sort of thing. And yep. it's it's not to sort of minimise the skills or abilities of anyone within the organisation, but they come with a certain perspective, which is uh, not really predefined, but it, it is easy for borders to be established without realising that they've been created, and then that can curtail thinking and those sorts of things. So having that external person be able to come in fresh and and provide a different perspective. And they can ask ask questions that are, are good questions, uh, but just questions that 
people wouldn't wouldn't have been able to think of because the their perspective is different. Um, so it is very nice to hear, to hear some of that, that positive feedback. But I think you've you've really highlighted a, an an important point there around the um, the unbiased perspective that those external people are able to bring, whether it be me or or someone else. Um, that is one of the the big benefits there as well. So now that obviously this this was part of the um, what you were, were talking about with your rollback uh, and that task force for the Royal Commission, this is now crystallising that, that achievement that you were were hoping that you, you could have got earlier. So the timeline's yeah. obviously extended, but you're still getting that that goal, which again is, is sort of uh, it's a really really positive thing to see that that um, that line of of progress is continuing to extend and continuing to be drawn. Um, how is that that national curriculum being received by those synods? We've had a uh, great response so far. Mm-hmm. The key stakeholders in our uh, project control group were also there as key communicators, mm-hmm. looping their stakeholders into the process such that we have three synods that are ready in inverted commas, ready to go <laughs> yep. at the start of next year. Um, the reality is that we're also transitioning from what has been uh, trainer-led training to online training. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a change process involved in that um, that will take some time. Yeah. But uh, what's really exciting is not those three synods because we anticipated that we might have some early adopters. Mm-hmm. What's exciting is the other synods who may have had other options are more and more looking like they will join the process uh, of training somewhere through the first half of next year. Oh, okay. That'll be quite the task to get all of the synods on board in a very short period of time. Yes, it will. But (laughs) uh, the the great thing, uh, and from a personal perspective, uh, the really um, practical thing that we've done is we've pushed all of the logistical parts of that process mm-hmm. to the synods where mm-hmm. they know the people and know their own systems. Yeah. So once we have the training up, uh, we can move into a resourcing mode yeah. to get the synods on board, but the actual activity involved in that will be the synods responsibility and so that's much more manageable for six different synods to be mm. uh, simultaneously moving toward that than it would be if we were trying to run that process yeah uh, and i don't think we've created the impression but, but just to, to clear it up if, if we did um it's not like before this there was there was nothing that the synods weren't doing anything around keeping children safe um, yeah but there were six different ideas of or six different methods in every synod was doing their own thing um so how has that changed uh, i guess uh sort of we're talking about the national consistency but even just efficiency and and those sorts of things have you seen improvement or, or do you expect to see improvements in that side of things too i think we will see improvements we haven't yet um but i think we will as uh, we deliver the training into synods and get past the initial change process of moving people into an online uh, portal. Mm-hmm. I think w- one of the things that was clear to me in the creation of the unit was 
the conundrum being uh, a body that operates in some respects like a federation, mm -hmm. uh, the repetition of tasks that happen synod by synod. Yeah. And what I was uh, really keen to do in delivering this unit was to deliver a uh, best practice hub mm -hmm. from which the energy that might have gone into creation in these six synods could be turned towards implementation. And so I think that what we will see next year in the training space, rather than people having to create, review, etc., you'll have people who will then be able to, because they will have time resources available to them to support learning, mm -hmm. uh, to support behaviour implementation as a result of learning. Yeah. So I think that's going to be really exciting. That's good news. We'll have to have you back uh, in the second half of, of 2021 to get an update on how it's actually going. Yeah, happy to, <laughs> particularly if it's going really, really well. Especially if it's going really, really well. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, as we, it is actually start to tie, start, try that again. It is time to start to close out. Um, so as I do end the podcast, uh, I like to do it by asking every guest uh, the same same two questions or similar sorts of questions. And as the podcast continues, I'm hoping that we'll build up quite a lot of advice and information which listeners find useful. Um, so the first one there is, uh, if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge for organisations that are only just beginning their child safe organisation's journey, what would it be? It doesn't have to be the best or the most important thing, but just something you recognise from your perspective as being an important thing to consider. Uh, explore your values. Mm -hmm. So think about what it is that's important to you as an organisation and how that expresses your commitment to child safety. Explore that, take the time to do that, write that down, mm -hmm. share that widely, and then hold yourselves accountable to that commitment. It has been a guiding light for us in the work that we do to return to that commitment made at the start of the Royal Commission yeah. and to continue to measure what it is that we're doing against that commitment to ensure that we are still living out that commitment we made. Uh, it has provided not only uh, wisdom and correction, mm -hmm. but it's also provided ongoing imperative. Yeah. And in governance conversations where resources are tight and where priorities need to be set, that value commitment will uh, be a really important platform from which to have the conversation about how we prioritise the work we do around safeguarding. Wow. I, I feel like you've prepared that. Have you said that before at something else? <laughs> uh, not in so many words. <laughs> it's just a core belief I have mm. uh, about what's important. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a that, really good message and you articulated it very well. Um, and I guess some uh, evidence in practice of that, going back to that national curriculum, uh, the the foreword of that draws back to um, the Royal Commission. It draws back to the apology and to the commitment that was made as part of that. And I'm not sure if we did talk about that, but 
um, that statement back to the Royal Commission wasn't just an apology. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. It, it, it wasn't only an it wasn't apology. Only, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, it also contained that commitment about the, the work that will be done in the future as well. And I have noticed yes. through through looking at, at your documents through your resources that that is consistently referred back to uh, in communication on in four words of important documents like the national curriculum and those sorts of things. So it is. Um, making sure that the reader is um, is basically pushed back to reflect on those values. And, and it's not just something that was said once uh, in, in front of the Royal Commissioners. It, it clearly does bleed through everything that you've been doing for the last few years. Um, so then turning to the second question. Uh, so what about parents and carers? What do you think is important for parents uh, and carers to know about keeping uh, children safe in organisations and institutions? That's a really good question. Um, there's a range of answers to that, but I, I'm sorry, as I'm talking, I'm distilling in my mm -hmm. own head. Yeah, sure. Um, um, I think it is a partnership. Mm -hmm. I think parents and carers have uh, every right to have any piece of information that's appropriate to their child's engagement in any organisation in which they are engaged. And they should feel free to exercise that right mm -hmm. at any point in time. Uh, I think the organisation's commitment is to transparency, mm -hmm. to openness, uh, to be ready to engage those conversations. It's a national principle that uh, parents, carers, communities are involved in decisions that affect the child and them. Yep. So we, I, I think parents and carers should grab hold of that opportunity um, and expect that of their organisations. Mm -hmm. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so, John, if people want to learn more about the National Safe Church Unit uh, and how you're contributing to keeping children safe, what is the best way that they can do that and how can they get in contact with you or the unit? Brad, I think the easiest way to learn some more about us is to go to our website. Mm -hmm. uh, so, safechurch.uca.org.au. Yep. Uh, but if you Google Uniting Church Safe Church Unit, you'll yep. find it. Um, that will have information about the unit's work, about uh, some of the resources that we have available, and it will have contact details for the unit. Uh, so you'll be able to use that as the connection point through to us. If uh, you'd like to talk to us, we'd love to talk to you. Excellent. And I'll, I'll put that website uh, in the notes for the podcast as well. Um, so thank you very much uh, for being a guest today, John Cox, Director of the National Safe Church Unit for the Uniting Church in Australia. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars and share it with your peers. Doing that will help make sure that PCA keep making it. Uh, and if you would like to be a guest on a future episode, visit childsafeguardingpodcast.com to send us a message. Uh, and to say thank you for subscribing and listening to the podcast, PCA has just recently created a discount code for 10% off products sold through the website. Just enter CS. POD10, that's C-S-P-O-D-1-0, at checkout for 10% off, and that's 10% off anything bought directly through the website with the code CSPOD10. 
and thank you for joining me on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm Brad Pointing, Principal Consultant for Pointing Consulting and Advisory, or PCA, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn by searching Bradley Pointing and follow PCA on Twitter at PointingCNA and check the podcast notes for spelling of all of that. And we'll see you next time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast.